It's good to be with you guys. I hope you all had a Merry Christmas. Uh, I had my first white Christmas this year. I'm 32. So first white Christmas uh, for 11 years, my wife and I go to her grandparents' house in Joshua Tree. Uh, and every year for 11 years, I've just like said a little prayer to the Lord. I'm like, Lord, if it's in your will that I would experience a white Christmas, let it be. And finally it happened. It just dumped snow in Yucca Valley, Joshua Tree on Christmas. It was amazing. I hope you guys had a good Christmas as well. It's so great to be with you guys on the last Sunday of 2019. Can you believe it? In three days, just three days from now, it is going to be 2020. And what I want to know is, where are the flying cars? Where are the flying cars? Like every sci-fi movie, it's like the year 2020, and there's like flying cars everywhere. And here we are, three days from 2020, I don't see any flying cars anywhere. I'm kidding, of course. Maybe like another couple decades we'll get flying cars. Um, but I, I have to be honest with you this morning that I'm not the biggest fan of New Year's. I'm not the biggest fan of New Year's. In fact, I actually think that New Year's is like kind of a weird and lame holiday. Okay? I know it's weird. Like, this guy's up here preaching on New Year's. Why did you have him preach? Uh, I'll tell you why, though, okay? The reason I think that New Year's, uh, the reason I'm not a fan of New Year's is because almost every other holiday that we have celebrates something tangible and specific, right? Like, July 4th. July 4th, we celebrate the day when, in 1776, our founding fathers signed the Declaration of Independence and the United States was born. That's very cool, and it's very specific, Just a few days ago, we celebrated the incarnation of God in Christ in the form of Jesus, who would come on a rescue mission to save a weary and broken humanity. That is awesome, and that's specific. Uh, Like three months from now, we're going to celebrate his death and resurrection, wherein he conquered death and gave us life everlasting. That is pretty awesome, and it's pretty specific. On October 31st, we celebrate the consumption of copious amounts of refined sugar on Halloween, which is also my wife's birthday. I have to make mention of that. We have holidays for literally everything. If you could think of it, there is probably a holiday for it. We have holidays for moms. We have holidays for dads. We have holidays for grandparents. We have holidays for siblings. We have holidays for veterans and workers and dead presidents. We have holidays for pirates. Did you know that? National Talk Like a Pirate Day. It's a real thing. If you're a drummer in this room, if anybody plays the drums, there is a day where people are supposed to come up to you and give you a hug. National Hug a Drummer Day. We have a holiday for hot dogs, and we have a holiday for regular dogs. March 27th might not be the most uh, significant day for you, but uh, that is National Manatee Appreciation Day. And then the following day, March 28th, is um, National Eat an Eskimo Pie Day. Anybody here like grilled cheese sandwiches? Yeah? April 12th, National Grilled Cheese Sandwich Day. On April 15th, you can watch the film Titanic while eating a spiral glazed ham because April 15th is National Remember the Titanic Day and it is National Spiral Glazed Ham Appreciation Day. And it's tax day. Don't forget that. The list goes on and on. I could go on for hours of all these crazy, weird holidays. And I kind of think that all of these random, weird holidays are cooler than New Year's. Because what is 
New Year's, really, other than just an arbitrary passage of time, and somebody hundreds of years ago decided that January 1st would be the day that the New Year starts. I would have loved to like, have been a fly on the wall uh, during that boardroom meeting when they're like, deciding when to start the New Year. Like Somebody comes in with their pitch and like, hey guys, check this out. I know it's a little bit outside of the box, but what if during the coldest, darkest, wettest season of the year, when everyone is 10 pounds heavier from eating tons of meat and potatoes, what if that is when we start the new year? Like springtime would be a much better time to start the new year, right? Like the flowers are starting to bloom. There's green on the hills. The days are getting longer and warmer. Way better time to start New Year's. Not in the winter when half the world is still in hibernation, And yet, despite all of this, New Year's is one of the most celebrated holidays on the planet. In fact, 92% of Americans celebrate New Year's. That is 305,333,267 Americans this year will celebrate New Year's. And about 1 million of those will flock to Times Square and freeze their butts off to watch a crystal ball slowly descend on top of a building. And I was doing research for this teaching. I went on the Times Square website. This is a little travel tip. This is a freebie for you, okay? If you go to Times Square for New Year's, you can't use the bathroom. You have to stand there the entire time. Like, usually people wait up to eight hours. Just think about that for a second, right? But people still do it. On television, that ball drop will be watched by over a billion people. Just to give you some idea of how many people that is, that is 10 times more than we'll watch the Super Bowl. New Year's is a big deal to a lot of people. So as I was preparing uh, to teach this week, I began to ask myself the question, why? Why is it that we ascribe such significance and meaning to a seemingly arbitrary and random passage of time? And I believe that the answer lies in the gospel. So if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, turn to John chapter 4. Or scroll to John chapter 4. This morning, we are going to take a look at a story from the Gospels that many of us are probably quite familiar with, but I really do believe that there is a deep revelation for us within these words of Scripture as we peek over the fence into 2020. We're going to be uh, learning from the story of the woman at the well. This is one of my favorite Uh, passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Um, I love it. It's one of the longest recorded individual conversations with Jesus that we have in all of the Gospels. And I love it because it reads like a really well-written film script. Like it's full of subtext. There's so much meaning. There's so much happening behind the words on the page. And today we are going to read the whole darn thing. It's like over 36 verses, I think. So buckle up, okay? Everybody got? Everybody there? Okay, good. John chapter 4. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation today. Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them as disciples did. So he left Judea and he returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, 
A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, but we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes to the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then, his disciples came back, and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her, or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back into the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Let's jump to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. When they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he indeed is the savior of the world. This is God's holy word. Let's pray together. Jesus. We rejoice in your word today. And God, I want to ask boldly this morning that you would speak to us. Lord, we, we don't need eloquent words spoken from a pulpit today. We don't need good ideas. We need a fresh revelation of the living God today. Lord, we need you to speak. So would you come and do that, Lord? Reveal to us the things buried deep in our souls that long to be made right once again, Lord. I ask that you would anoint my mouth to teach and to preach in a way that is glorifying to your name and edifying to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2004, the third episode of the widely popular television series Lost 
went on the air, and that episode was called Tabula Rasa. And this story focused on the backstory of Kate, who was one of the main characters on the show. And the episode reveals that Kate has a rather complicated criminal past. We learn that uh, she was on Oceanic Flight 815 as a prisoner being extradited by a U.S. Marshal from Australia to America to account for her crimes. And if you're familiar with the show at all, you know that uh, Oceanic 815 mysteriously crashes on a desert island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And this puts Kate in an awkward situation. Her captor, this U.S. Marshal, is badly wounded. He's clinging on to life, and he could die at any minute. And so she's wrestling with whether or not to reveal who she really is to the other survivors. If the, if the U.S. Marshal dies, then her identity is protected. People won't ever find out who she is or what she's done. But there's a chance that if he survives, then it could get really bad for her. So she's going back and forth about whether or not she should reveal herself And finally, she works up the courage to tell Jack, one of the other characters, who she really is. And just when the words are about to leave her mouth, Jack stops her, and he looks her in the eye, and he says, Kate, three days ago, we all died. We should all be able to start over. And those words are, in essence, the meaning of the concept of tabula rasa. It's a a Latin word, and it's literally translated blank slate or uh, erased slate. And the concept is derived from the wax tablets that ancient Romans and Greeks would use to write things down. So you would inscribe uh, what you were writing in the wax, and if you needed to erase it, you would heat the wax up, the wax would melt and settle, and the slate would be uh, clean once again. And since then, this uh, phrase, tabula rasa, has become synonymous with the idea of a fresh start or a new beginning. And we understand this idea very well because we think this way all the time. We really do. And usually uh, it takes the form of this thought. If I could just start over, if I could just start over, how many of, thought, of us have thought about this when it comes to our like, career or our vocation? You're like, if I could just go back to college and change my major from this major to that major, or if I took this internship out of school instead of that one, maybe I wouldn't be like working at a vape shop right now. <laughs> Sorry, if you work in a vape shop, I, I, I really apologize. <laughs> For me, this happens every time I watch the Academy Awards. Because I'm a film graduate. I graduated from film school in 2008. And my dream... Like, my dream was to someday do something that was worth me getting called up to the stage at the Academy Awards that I could give one of those, like, awkward acceptance speeches and tell my kids to go to bed. Like, that was my dream. And every time I watch the Academy Awards, like, this thought runs through my mind for some reason. It's like, man, if I, if I just did this instead of this when I got out of school and took this internship that I got offered but I declined, maybe, maybe I would be up on that stage right now. How many of us have done this uh, when it comes to our homes? Anybody? I regularly fantasize about renting one of those giant, like, E.J. Harrison dumpsters, putting it, like, outside my garage, and just throwing every single thing that I own away and starting over. (laughs) Praise God. Uh, 
I just asked my wife. I literally do that like once every like four months. I'm just like, I just want to start over. Just get rid of everything. Go to Ikea. Just buy a bunch of Ikea furniture and just start over. How many parents in the room? Any parents? You've definitely had this thought before. You have definitely had this thought before. You're like, man, if I could just go back to when my kid was born and I just took all the devices away and I cut sugar out of the diet, maybe my kid would not be having this temper tantrum in the middle of Bed Bath & Beyond right now. Or if you're an older parent, maybe my kid would not be working at a vape shop. (laughs) How many husbands and wives in the midst of a a struggling marriage have, have said those words? Man, if we could just start over, maybe things would be different. There's something within uh, each of us, something deep within us that longs for tabula rasa. There's something buried deep within our soul that yearns for the slate to be made clean. And this is the reason I think uh, so many people put so much significance in New Year's. In some strange and superficial way, New Year's promises us the ability to wipe our slate clean and start over. And often it's said this way, right? New Year, new you. Yes. You know this. This is the great promise of New Year's. And with this promise in mind, many of us adopt personal resolutions to make our lives better, cleaner, healthier, more efficient, less cluttered, And what we're really trying to do with these resolutions is we're trying, we're attempting to wipe our slate clean. And it might work for a little bit. Those kinds of resolutions, they might work for a little bit, but we quickly realize that our slate is far too big, it's far too messy for us to clean up on our own. And what happens so often is that we fall into the same old habits, same old patterns, unhealthy lifestyles, And soon that little corner of our slate that we work so hard to clean becomes messy and tarnished once again. We just can't get ourselves out of the mess. I believe that the main character of our passage today found herself in that same familiar and desperate place. The Samaritan woman at the well is one of the most intriguing and complex characters in all of the Gospels. There's a deep, deep well of nuance to her, no pun intended, for a moment this morning, I just, I just want us to like take a moment and put ourselves in her shoes. I want us to imagine what it must have felt like to be in this woman's position, walking to the well, carrying a big, heavy, empty water bucket during the middle of the day. Remember, this is the desert. It's dry, it's barren, and it's really, really hot. It was so hot that the women would uh, almost always go to the well in the early hours of the morning to escape the heat. This is something that women did together. Uh, they would gather in the city and they would go to the well. This was a woman's job. And they would go, draw water, and they would have enough water to last them throughout the entire day. So drawing well, uh, water from the well was, um, it was a women's social event. It's like the Starbucks of ancient Israel. It's a place of congregation and a place of socialization. News, rumors, gossip about the goings-on of the community would have been distributed and disseminated at the well. But this woman is alone. Something was preventing her from going to the well into the morning. We don't know specifically what that is, but we can hypothesize a little bit. Perhaps she just overslept like so many of us all do. That could have happened. Or perhaps 
She wanted to avoid the scorn and public humiliation of being seen by the other women at the well. Whatever the reason, this woman must have been pretty desperate to go at noon. Because of this, she likely would have been tired, but not just physically tired. She was exhausted emotionally, mentally, and certainly relationally. Tired of going from house to house. Tired of going from husband to husband. We learned this woman had five husbands. It's a lot of husbands, even by today's standards. Certainly it would have been back then. But it's interesting because a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this, like we assume that this woman was just like adulterous. And it doesn't say that necessarily. The scriptures don't say that she was necessarily adulterous, although she was sleeping with a man that was not her husband. But these other five husbands, anything could have happened. They could have, just, they could have all died. And she was a widow, widow who endured death after death after death after death of man after man. She could have been the one who was abused. Perhaps she got chewed up and spit out time after time by man after man, leaving her emotionally crippled. And I wonder how many times this woman made New Year's resolutions. I wonder how many times she thought the same thing that we all think around New Year's. This time, things are going to be different. This time, I'm going to wait for the right man to come around. This time, I'm going to fight to keep the marriage afloat. And I wonder if she just finally grew tired of making them. I wonder if she finally got sick of having to start over time and time again, each failed marriage and situation slowly chiseling away at her confidence that things could be different. I wonder if she had given in to hopelessness and defeat that things could really change. I wonder if she was so hopeless that she finally just gave up on the institution of marriage entirely. She's like, what's the point of getting married if it's just going to end in disaster? And it's at this desperate, hopeless, and exhausted point in this woman's life that Jesus decides to show up at the well. And what Jesus does here is going to change the course of her entire life forever. Jesus is going to take this woman from desperation to deliverance, and it is so beautiful. He is going to give her tabula rasa. And there's four things uh, that Jesus does in this story that I want to double-click on this morning. But first, I want to give us just a little bit of context to help us understand. So Jesus is traveling from Judea to Galilee. The rumors about his public ministry are starting to make their way back to the Pharisees, and it's making them uh, scared uh, and angry. At this point, Jesus has done four things according to John's gospel. Jesus has turned water into wine. Remember that one? Jesus has uh, driven the money changers out of the temple. He makes that whip, turns over the tables, and drives the money changers out. Jesus has confronted Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, about being born again. And then Jesus travels throughout the countryside baptizing people, or we learn that uh, his disciples were baptizing people. And in verse 1, it says, They, the Pharisees, heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. They're starting to see that this whole Jesus movement thing is starting to gain some traction among the people, and it's riling them up. Instead of confronting the Pharisees, Jesus decides to go back to Galilee. And in between Judea and Galilee was Samaria. We see in verse 4, it says, Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, this is peculiar because Jesus didn't really have to go through Samaria, at least by Jewish cultural standards. He did not have to go through Samaria. In fact, the opposite was actually true. As a Jewish rabbi, Jesus actually had to avoid 
Samaria. I'm going to put a map up just to show you guys what I'm talking about. So Jesus is down in Judea, down there, right? And then the middle between Judea and Galilee is Samaria. Now, the fastest route from Judea to Galilee is to go right through the heart of Samaria. But often what uh, the Jewish people would do is they would make a hard right and go all the way up the Jordan River back into Galilee. It's kind of like if you have to drive from Ventura to Orange County on a Friday afternoon, and you pull out your phone, and you look at the disgusting, horrendous web of red traffic lines that is the greater Los Angeles area, and you resolve to do anything at all, you resolve deep down in your heart to do anything possible to avoid that traffic, even if it takes you more time, you're going to do whatever you can to avoid that traffic. Like you'll take the 14 up to Lancaster, drive across some desert road to Victorville, and then drop yourself all the way back down into Orange County if it means you don't have to endure the traffic. This is what was happening in ancient Israel, except the Jews did not hate the traffic. They hated the Samaritans. And here's the reason. It's a little Bible history. So a few hundred years before Jesus, Israel was invaded by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians exiled almost everybody. They took almost everybody into exile, but they left behind the lower classes of society. So the slaves and the servants, they were of no use to the Babylonians, so they left them behind. It created this void. And over time, other non-Jewish people groups slowly made their way into the region. And the Jews who were left behind began to intermarry and create families with these non-Jewish people groups. And so the Samaritans emerged as this religious and ethnic uh, culture. And their faith then became like the spiritual amalgamation. It was like a combination of Judaism mixed with very, various other rituals and superstitions. It was spiritually messy. And this messiness is why the Samaritans were so despised by the Jews. They were regarded uh, by the Jews as religious and ethnic half-breeds. Many Jews actually believed that um, the Samaritans were worse than the Gentiles, which is saying quite a bit. For any Jewish person to be associated with a Samaritan would be to become unclean. But Jesus was not just any Jew. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher of the law. And so by venturing into the messy heart of Samaria, Jesus was breaking every cultural norm known to the, to the Jewish tradition. I want to make a point that this wasn't an issue of convenience. It wasn't like Jesus was doing this to save time. It was an issue of compulsion. And I love the way that the old King James translates verse 4. It says, translates it this way. It says, he must needs go through Samaria. This denotes intentionality and purpose. It's the same word that Paul would use when he talked about the necessity of Jesus going to the cross. And just when it seems like Jesus cannot get any more scandalous, this Samaritan woman shows up to draw water from the well. Now, as a Jewish man, and specifically a rabbi, Jesus had no business even looking this woman in the eye. But what does he do? He says, please give me a drink. I want us to realize how ludicrous this would have been for Jesus to even speak these words, for Jesus to ask for something else from a Samaritan. 
And we know that it's ridiculous by how she responds, right? She says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? She's like, Jesus, what, like, what are you doing right now? You know that if I take anything from you, if, I, if you drink this water that I give you, it's going to make you unclean. And we also know how ridiculous this is by the way that the, uh, the, the disciples respond to Jesus when they come back. They're like speechless. They're like, what is this guy doing with this woman? I don't understand. Like, this is mind-blowing. Jesus could not have put himself in a messier situation. And this is the first thing that I want us to notice today is that Jesus is not afraid of your mess. I believe there's somebody in this room who needs to hear that today. What's the messiest thing in your life right now? Jesus is not afraid of your addiction. He's not afraid of your depression. Jesus isn't afraid of your anxiety. He's not afraid of your heartbreak. Jesus isn't afraid of that broken relationship in your life that you can't reconcile. Jesus is not afraid of your marital conflict that you keep falling into. Jesus isn't afraid of your doubt. He's not afraid of your anger. He's not afraid of your rebellion. He's not afraid of your perfectionism, your legalism, or your pride. Jesus is not afraid of your mess. He doesn't go out of his way to avoid your mess. He doesn't tiptoe around your mess. We do that all the time as humans. We do that all the time. We're like, oh, you got that going on? You're struggling with that? Ooh, that's messy. I'm going to just kind of go over here. But that is not what Jesus does. And Jesus is not just unafraid of your mess. Jesus is not afraid to be seen sitting with you in your mess. He wasn't afraid to be seen sitting with the woman at the well. He wasn't worried what the disciples or anybody else would think when they saw him talking to her. Jesus must needs go into the heart of your messy situation because that is the kind of savior that he is. Jesus is compelled. He can't help himself. He says that in John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world to to condemn the world, but that through him, the world might be saved. That is Jesus' mission statement. Jesus is so full of love and mercy and kindness and compassion that he can't help but go into the messiest, darkest places of your life and make himself known. It's who he is. See, Jesus knows everything about you. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the author and the finisher. He is omnipotent and omnipresent. Jesus knows every thought that you have had, And he knows every thought that you will have. He sees when you rise and when you fall, like it says in Psalm 139. Jesus is more intimately acquainted with your mess than you will ever be. And he is not afraid of it. That is good news today. Jesus is not afraid of your mess. So here Jesus is. He's sitting with the woman at the well and he asks her for a drink, which is just so mind-blowingly ridiculous. And the woman responds, she says, what are you doing asking me for a drink? And then Jesus does something very interesting. I don't know if you caught it or not, but he turns the tables. In verse 10, it says, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Instead of receiving water, Jesus is now offering water, living water. And this is very interesting Because there are two layers to this idea of living water. And the first layer is very practical. Uh, In ancient Israel, there were two, generally two ways that you could get water. One was to dig like a trench in the ground. You would line the trench with clay. And then when it rained, it would fill up with water. 
and then you would draw water from, it's called a cistern. So you draw water from the cistern. And that was one way to get water, but eventually the water becomes stale. After it sat there long enough, it becomes stale. But there was another way that you could get water, and that was from a well or a spring. And this water was called living water. It was called living water because when it bubbled up from the ground, it, would, it looked like it was alive. And that's why they called it living water. So when Jesus says, I would give you living water, the woman is thinking, wait, there's another well somewhere that you know about, that I don't know about. This is awesome. But she's still focused on her practical need, which is like real physical water. Look what she says in verse 11. She says, but sir, you don't have a rope or bucket, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? She hasn't quite gotten it yet. She's still focusing on the temporal. And I love how Jesus responds to her. He says, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. What Jesus is doing here is he is leading her to understand the thirst within her soul. Her thirst, her redemption, for reconciliation, for, for true satisfaction, and a new beginning. Her thirst for tabula rasa. And that's the second thing I want us to look at today is that Jesus always sees your deeper need. You know, so often in life, we think we have a pretty good idea of what we need. We've got our needs situation figured out. And this happens so often around New Year's. This is how our resolutions get formed. At the end of the year, as we enter a new year, we take stock of our lives and we try to figure out what it is that we need. Like this year, I need a new job. I can't stand my job. I hate it. It's driving me nuts. I need a new job this year. Maybe it's, uh, this year I need a more stable financial situation. I'm just like scraping by, making ends meet. This year I need to lose some weight. I'm tired of the way people look at me. This year I need my spouse to listen to me for five seconds. This year I need my children to do their chores without throwing a fit. You see, Jesus knows the need that lies underneath the temporal. Jesus knows that what you need more than a new job is a sense of divine purpose and motivation in your life that transcends vocation. Jesus knows that what you need more than financial stability is the assurance that he himself is the firmest of foundations and that nothing built upon the rock of Christ will ever crumble. Jesus knows that what you need more than losing a few pounds is losing the weight of shame that's been heaped onto you year after year after year. He knows that what you need more than a listening spouse is to be seen and heard and valued by the eternal lover of your soul. He knows that what you need more than obedient kids is to understand how dearly loved and cherished you are by your heavenly Father. Jesus sees the deeper need even when we are not able to. And if we let him, if we allow him to, he is faithful to reveal those deeper needs and give us the abundant living water that can satisfy those needs a hundred times over. So often those deep needs that Jesus reveals are less about where we are and the more about who we are. And that's the third thing I want us to look at is that Jesus is more concerned with changing yourself than your situation. Jesus could have changed this woman's situation in an instant. He could have snapped his fingers and changed everything around her. He could have like manifested a private spring just for her so she wouldn't have to endure the scorn and public humiliation of going to this well. 
But Jesus was after something far greater than changing what was around her. Jesus wanted to change something within her. All her life, this woman sought to find living water in what was around her in all kinds of different places, and it failed her. But what Jesus does is he puts living water inside of her, and it changes everything. A woman who was once afraid of being shamed by those around her is now telling everyone that she possibly can about what Jesus has done for her. And an entire village is transformed. That's what living water does. And none of that would have happened if Jesus just changed her situation. None of that would have happened if Jesus didn't change her heart. Maybe you have been praying for years for God to change your circumstances. But what if he really wants to change is you? What if instead of removing you from that toxic work environment, Jesus wants to cultivate the kind of character inside of you that can transform an organization from the inside out? What if instead of giving you that perfect relationship that you've been asking for, God wants to make you into the kind of person who is so in love with Jesus that you aren't dependent upon others for emotional satisfaction and fulfillment? What if instead of giving you that conflict-free marriage you've been praying for, God wants to make you into the kind of spouse who can navigate conflict with grace and love and mercy and kindness? What if instead of healing you of that affliction, what if God wants to grow in you the kind of faith that isn't swayed by the afflictions of this life. So often we ask God to change what's around us, but how often do we ask him to change what's within us? The final thing that I want to look at this morning is that Jesus is not afraid to be honest with you. The Samaritan woman was willing to sit in the presence of Jesus and have an honest and even uncomfortable conversation with him. She didn't run away when the darkest places of her soul were exposed. She didn't, want, she didn't run away from the light. She pressed into the light. She had every reason to bolt when Jesus called her out. I would have done that. Jesus revealed that, that deep thing in me. I'd be like, I'm sorry, I can't take this too much. I'm out of here. See ya. But she doesn't do that. And because she didn't, she found true living water. I want to leave us with this question. When was the last time that you sat down with Jesus? When was the last time you took some time with him and had an open and honest conversation? When was the last time you let him be honest with you? When was the last time you said, Jesus, I give you permission to tell me the truth about who I am, the good, the bad, and the ugly? I would imagine that for many of us in this room, it's been a while since we really had that conversation with Jesus. And maybe for some of us, You've never had that conversation with Jesus. <clears throat> Maybe you're cool when Jesus says good and awesome things about you, but you're not so cool when he starts to bring up the hard stuff. Maybe today is the first time that you allow Jesus to speak to you openly and honestly. And I'll be honest, it might not be the most comfortable conversation. You might feel exposed. But if you press into the light today, I promise promise that it will set you free, just like it did for the Samaritan woman. As we end this year, if you're tired, if you're weary, if you're short on hope and desperate for something to change in your life, I have good news for you today. The good news is that there is a man sitting at a well. His name is Jesus, and he wants to give you living water today. 
Friends, let this, 2020, let this year be the year of living water. Amen? Jesus, I want to boldly ask you right now. I want to boldly ask that you would speak to us openly and honestly. And I acknowledge that that is sometimes a scary thing, a thing that makes us very uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to be exposed, Lord. But you do it because of your love. So I ask God that by the power of your spirit, you would give us the grace to stay in the light, to have that conversation with you, to hear the things that we need to hear, not just the things that we want to hear, to hear the things that our souls desperately need to hear. And Lord, I thank you today that there is an abundance of living water for each person in this room. There is an abundance of living water for our souls. For the person in this room that's weary, God, I ask that you would bring refreshment. For the person who is hopeless, God, I ask that you would stir up hope within them. God, would you speak to us right now? Friends, today is the day to have that honest and open conversation with Jesus. We have the carpets uh, up here at the front of the stage for you to come and tune out the distractions and just sit and talk with Jesus. We also have uh, the communion elements up here at the front of the stage as a reminder of the cost of the living water that Jesus gives away so freely and abundantly. And if you're struggling today to hear Jesus, there are some lovely people to the left and to the right who would love nothing more than to lead you to his voice. Friends, let's not leave today without sitting in the presence of Jesus and allowing him to speak to us. Amen.